The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Turn us on and the satisfaction's guaranteed. Frank discussion with passion on CJD 800. Happy Monday, everybody. Uh, This week is Bell Let's Talk Day on Thursday, but we're going to kick it off tonight uh, talking about your mental health with our therapist panel after 10.15, talking about depression. We'll talk about anxiety and stress, how that uh, can can be quite contagious. Uh, And of course, dealing with the pandemic and anything else you would like to talk about dealing with your mental health because your mental health matters to us but first time to check out our inbox your texts are always welcome connect with passion at 514-800 remember you can always email me as well to laurie at drlaurie.com uh, Ms. Lori, sometimes things happen by chance. I caught your show when you were talking about TV in the bedroom and if you would stay with someone with a mental health issue. So that was the baby boomer show. I have been living this for seven years now, and it was your show that made me finally realize it cannot go on. The comments that the three of you conveying were so helpful. I tried to get him help, begged him, and the few times we did go, he said the doctor was crazy. Three different doctors, all three crazy. All three told me privately the same thing. He is delusional, and when you confront his delusion, he may become violent to some degree. This was something I never told the doctors, but it is true. I left Saturday, and he thinks I'm crazy. As much as I love him, I did everything I could and more to help. His own sister told me to leave, and he told her things that she knows are not true and never happened. He even told her that I left him for two months last year. She knows I never did. And when I asked him about it, he told me I am in denial and that I am crazy. His sister, brother, and my brother helped me move, but I left him mostly everything. Told us we were conspiring against him. Thank you for opening my eyes. I'm not happy about what I had to do, but I know I did the right thing. Thank you again. And that is uh, an example of the impact that the community here, you know, we all contribute. So when somebody has an issue, we get a lot of people weighing in, a lot of people giving their own uh, their own thoughts, their own experiences. And this really helps. And that's, that kind of letter just shows me the importance of everybody else's input as well, not just mine or, or my guests, but also all of you. So thank you for uh, contributing. And uh, tonight, of course, we will be talking about uh, mental health issues in general. Uh, But let me go on with a couple of sex-related questions, and then we'll turn it over to uh, general uh, mental health issues. How can I leave masturbation? The thing is, I can't get married and can't be in any relationship. This habit is wasting my time and energy. I'm a bachelor student. I'm facing this habit for six to seven years. So I'm not sure, like, it's not very clear to me. This is all very, very, very limited information, right? So I can only talk a little bit general, uh, in general, but I'm not, like, I'm not sure why you need to give up masturbation and what this has to do with you getting married. Uh, The only time masturbation is a problem is if it's done compulsively and if it interferes with your life. So I have questions. I have more questions than I have answers. Are you masturbating out of boredom? 
Are you masturbating to relieve anxiety? Those are the issues you would have to address um, first. If it's boredom, then find some activities to engage in, whether you work out, to go for a walk, do something creative with your hands, build something, do a puzzle, whatever it is. If you're anxious, then you might want to speak to a professional to understand where this anxiety is coming from and then develop maybe some strategies uh, to cope. If you're not in a relationship because you have trouble relating to women and that's why you don't get there or you can't be, so I don't understand what the can't is all about, then you may want to work um, with a dating coach maybe to help you with, uh, with communication and help see what you're doing wrong or help you deal with uh, your shyness or awkwardness to, towards uh, women if that's the case. Another uh, person poses a question to you. Do you feel guilty when you masturbate for some reason? So is it a question of guilt? Is there an upbringing here where this is sinful and where you, you feel you're doing something horribly wrong? Masturbation is uh, normal. Now, I understand if there are religious, uh, if you brought up with, with religious constraints to this, to, to this behavior, um, then you have to deal with sometimes very conflicting emotions because sometimes the drive could be just bigger and uh, it, it's very hard to um, contain and never touch yourself if you feel uh, horny, for example, which everybody does, right? This is something. So uh, so I understand where that can certainly create some kind of conflict in one's uh in one's head and then um and then lead to some potential problems especially when it comes to um you know trying to overcome the the guilt or um or the shame i've read a lot of questions about long-term couples who have trouble keeping the spark alive in the sense that their sex drives are lowered and they don't do it a lot my question is a bit different we still have lots of sex and we're adventurous about it but it still feels kind of rote. There's not the passion or urgency that there used to be. So the sex is still there, but that spark is gone. Is there a way to get it back or is this just normal in long-term relationships? I love this question. I think it's great. I'm also really happy to hear that you're having lots of sex. So good on you. Unfortunately though, it's very difficult to reproduce the feeling that we have at the beginning of a relationship. And all we have to do is look at physiology for this. At the beginning of a relationship, that whole, uh, it's the lust and attraction phase of a relationship. There is a release of hormones that make us almost feel addicted to our partner. That's the sense of urgency you're talking about. Later in the attachment phase, the, the hormones that are released are more about uh, bonding, right? Bonding hormones. And all long-term relationships generally move through these phases. So yes, it may reduce that sense of urgency or that spontaneous desire, but that doesn't mean we stop having sex. It's just we're less driven by that uh, addictive feeling or that urgency feeling and more driven by wanting to be close and intimacy. And yes, the horniness too, obviously. Now, 
to address like what you could do, there are studies that show that couples who engage in new activities together outside of the bedroom, like discovering a new sport together, for example, they tend to have more passionate sex lives. So basically living a passionate life can lead to more passion in the bedroom. And that's my message. Uh, coming up, our therapist panel joins uh, joins me and uh, we kick off Bell Let's Talk. We're starting it a bit early, but we're going to start talking about mental health issues. A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's Passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. One of my favorite times of the month is when I'm joined by my colleagues to discuss mental health issues. I'm very, very happy to have two of my faves, Sandra Reich. She is a psychotherapist and the clinical director of the Montreal Center for Anxiety and Depression, and Stefan Bensusen, who is a health psychologist and the director of Psy Santé. Welcome back, you two. Hi, everybody. Hi, nice Welcome to out. see you or speak to you. Yes, well, we get to, we see each other on Zoom. For those who don't know what's happening behind the scenes, as we look at each other on Zoom while we're talking, it's the best best of both worlds, I guess. Instead of uh, being able to have you in studio, so it's the best we can do. But at least we get to see each other's faces, which is uh, kind of nice. I do miss Dave in studio, though. Dave, we got to figure out a way to Zoom each other too. Well, uh, because I, I just you don't see anybody. Uh, so maybe we could even start by talking about that, that isolation of um, not seeing too many people in person, what that's doing to us. And I, I don't know how other people are feeling, but here's my fear, okay? You you guys know me. Uh, I'm a touchy-feely kind of person. I like hugging my friends, um, all of that. And now it's like I'm, I, I fear that I'm going to get used to not touching anybody. And, and I don't want this to become the, the the new normal. So I don't know if other people are experiencing that or not, but how to deal with <laughs> the lack of touch, <laughs> basically. So Stefan, it's maybe you can to, start. I think it's hard for all of us to be, you know, the, the regular handshake the, when you meet someone, it, it's difficult. People that you care and love when you want to hug and hold and you can't do that so, so easily you have to, catch yourself a little bit more, but it's, it's especially hard for the little ones. I was talking to a friend of mine in Vancouver yesterday whose little boy is three years old, and when he goes to the park, he sees people, he says, I want to make a friend, and he goes and rushes <laughs> over to the kids, and, and the parents get freaked out, and they take the right. kids away as if the kid has plague, you know, and it's like it's such an awkward time before a kid is being traumatized. Nobody wants to play with me. And they don't understand that, right? So I, I have a feeling we're going to create, like, uh, a generation of these anxious little kids who are not going to go to, hey, go hug, gra you know, give grandma a hug or auntie such a, a hug. It's going to be like, no, no, I don't touch anybody, <laughs> you know? We're going to forget how to hold and, and touch. Yeah. It's going to be, uh, be a new society. Um, I have a feeling. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it looks like it's here for, it's here for a while. I, I mm -hmm. think there's uh, it's going to be a long little while. I don't want to sound like a, a downer on this, but I think we might have another year to go before things start to feel a lot more normal. But I think people predicted that at the beginning of the pandemic, people said, and nobody wanted to believe it. They said about two yeah. years. That's what Which I had I, said the first time I was on the show with you at that you time. You did. It's COVID true. I said two years, a minimum. Yeah, so two years. Exactly. Year. Well, that's hard first, to believe. Today's the anniversary. Did you know the first, first person in Canada was diagnosed with COVID? It was uh, a year ago today. 
Oh, yay. <laughs> it's like, he, he, oh, yay. It's like not an anniversary to exactly celebrate, but hopefully one that says, okay, we're, we're starting to, I don't want to say, you know, what did Trump used to say? We're just rounding the corner, rounding the curve, you know? <laughs> I don't want to say that yet in case, you know, it, it's not quite true. We're still in a, in a bad situation. So, mm-hmm. um, but I want to know how other people, of course, uh, are feeling. Sandra, what about in your practice? What are people complaining about? Well, I think that the isolation is really hard on people. And uh, we always talk about this concept of uncertainty. Uncertainty is very hard for the brain to accept. So we just don't know what's happening. Is it six months? Is it a year? Is it two years? What are we looking at? And I think that that's really difficult for people. I think that we can always handle bad news. It's just not knowing that's really tough on people. Right. Not knowing how long it's going to last. That's the, uh, yeah. it, it's like you can handle, you know, it's like when you know, when there's a pain, for example, you know that there's a beginning and an end. You say, oh, I can tough this out because I know it'll be over on this day, you know, or, or within a week or whatever. It's, it's a, a lot harder when we, uh, we just don't know. Hey, somebody wrote in, how do I cope with two years of COVID? I live alone and I'm at my wits end. Well, hopefully it won't be two years of living, like of, of not having contact. I think when we say two years, it's like getting back to a normal kind of uh, of routine but hopefully we'll be able to like in the summertime we were able to have some connections it was a little easier because you can social distance and and the weather's nice and everything so um absolutely so i do have some questions go ahead uh stefan just to add on to what sandra said you know when she was mentioning uncertainty how we have a hard time dealing with uncertainty and and when we have fear um, and uncertainty that causes people to have anxiety, right? So fear plus anxiety equals fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety, and and right. we've seen a lot of that in our in our days in our practice. Uh, I think more and more people are finally reaching out and, and asking for help and saying, "I can't do this anymore." And there's a lot more generalized anxiety disorders, a lot more panic attacks, a lot more yeah. general, you know, a lot well, more than we used to see. Oh my goodness. Yes. I think we got something from the order of psychologists telling us that 70% of the population is suffering from either depression or anxiety uh, and that the government has to do something to provide more psychological help. Because if you look at all of us and all of our colleagues, we barely have any space for anybody. And and some of us are stretching out. We're working far longer hours than we normally would, because I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't like to say no to somebody who's suffering uh, and I want to be able to help. So I know I'm working almost twice as much as I was before, which is, you know, so I just don't, I think we have to be careful as the helpers also not to burn out, but, um, but it just goes to show you that the, the help is out there and it's done something good for our profession in the sense that it destigmatizes it quite a bit because so many people know and are reaching out for help, which I think is a really great thing. Um, Very true. We are caregivers and we are there to serve and support. But yeah, you're right about that. Like it's the first time in my career where I've had to say no to people. You know, usually we're looking for clients and seeking clients and advertising. Now we're we're turning down advertising. We're telling people we're sorry we can't help you. Um, And that's that's hard for us to do as, as caregivers. But there's always someone else available. 
Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it is difficult, but there are numbers to call. I think the, I'll have yeah. to dig that up. But the the government number, I think they can uh, set you up. But they're working on programs to be able to support um, with private uh, therapists to support the public. So I know they're working on this. That's all I know. I, I haven't heard anything more than that. I have a question here. Uh, this show came at the perfect time. I was diet. I was prescribed an antidepressant by my GP. I have generalized anxiety disorder, get stressed very easily. I have had high levels of anxiety all my life without meds. I don't think I have depression as I have only had suicidal thoughts during a crisis or heartbroken, but it passed. I am so scared of the increase in suicidal thoughts that I heard of with antidepressants and also possible weight gain as I'm trying to lose weight as I can overeat sometimes. Do these types of medication cause weight gain or loss with eating disorders? Could they help reduce cortisol, which could have caused my weight gain? Or do they only cause people to gain weight? Is it worth it? Am I too scared to take them. So Stefan, as a health psychologist, um, maybe you can address this one first. Okay. So first of all, the medication that she was prescribed, I think it's a she, uh, uh, is an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Um, but the antidepressant, they call them antidepressants, but they're really anti-anxiety and anti-anxiety medication. So they're, they're, they work term. on both levels, right? They, they were yeah. anti-anxiety and, and, and the antidepressants are, they treat the same medication treats the same, treats the diff, the two different uh, conditions. Exactly. So right. even if she has generalized anxiety disorder, it will help her. And we always have to look at the pros and cons of starting a medication and that she should have done with her doctor. And I'm sure her doctor, if, if it was recommended to her, it's probably because you've got to consider the worst, you know, the, the best case scenario. Either you treat the anxiety or you, you you leave the person go really feeling uncomfortable and suffering. And then, you know, I think it's better to take a medication that's going to support her and calm her down and ground her rather than not take her and let the anxiety be rampant. I think the, the weight gain is not necessarily consistent with all medications, um, and it doesn't necessarily, it's not addictive. Uh, antidepressants are usually something that we can get off fairly quickly in a few weeks if it's mm-hmm. done properly, and it doesn't cause any major side effects the first few days. You'll get some maybe, but in the long run, it's better to be on antidepressants uh, if you're suffering a, a condition like a generalized anxiety disorder than, than not take anything at all and, and deal with side effects. Also, the she, I think there was they were mentioning the increase of suicidal thoughts on antidepressants. I think that's very yeah. rare, um, but if yeah. you do notice that, you reach out to your doctor. It just may be that that medication is not the right medication for you. There is no one size fits all, unfortunately. There are many, many on the market, right. and they are they are all they can all behave differently in in the same person. So, uh, I think it's uh, I know it's frustrating, but at the very beginning you may have to play around with your doctor to figure out the dosage and the medication that is best to con- for you to control uh, your anxiety and that will make you feel much better. That's the, uh, that's the effect. Sandra, do you want to add to that? Um, well, just the last part that you were talking about, um, and when people go through hard times, a lot of times it's in the first three weeks of the medication, right. body's getting used to it. And again, we're talking about um, generalized anxiety disorder or, you know, sometimes severe thoughts of depression. Uh, Although weight gain sometimes happens, there's things we can do to mitigate that. You know, a lot of times, a lot of research on not only the medication can cause weight gain, but also the fact that you're feeling more relaxed 
And so you start to eat more. We can also exercise more. There's lots of things we can do. And I think it's well positioned to say it's not one size fits all. There are many different medications and uh, they can be really helpful. And for some people and for some people, they're not. And there's, you know, there's many roads to Rome, uh, but definitely we want to treat what's going on here. Right. I think it's effective for like 65% of the time. It's, uh, it's effective. So it's not always, but you want to work with a, a physician who can do the prescription, the prescribing and also a psychologist who can monitor you and, uh, and, and give you also other, uh, tools and strategies and, and things that you, that, uh, would help you with that. Uh, here, a texter writes in, if we are permanently rid of the cheek kissing in Montreal, I say, yay, it's about time. Mm-hmm. I and my many friends have always hated this forced, cringeworthy social obligation of kissing everyone, including strangers. I will from now on be understood and excused for refusing to do it. It's not nearly as bad in Montreal as it is in, in France, by the way. In France, sheer strangers you're introduced to somebody you've never met before and they're they're giving you kisses and here i i find people are a little more give you a little bit more more space and then there's some countries it's three kisses it's not two kisses it's three (laughs) cheek kisses and this also by strangers so there you have it uh bell let's talk day is thursday we're kicking it off uh, the week tonight talking about mental health issues on our therapist panel sandra reese defend ben susan uh in uh, i was gonna say in studio not but uh, here with me we're going to talk about how stress and anxiety may be contagious and why yeah. is it that young men are more likely to feel lonely during the pandemic than older people that's coming up after we check in with our cjd 800 newsroom The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. From the pleasure and the politics to the hangups and the heartbreak, you're listening to Passion, CJD 800. Bell Let's Talk Day is on Thursday. Now, Bell Let's Talk is a wonderful initiative, uh, and it's all about uh, discussing mental health uh, openly. And of course, we do that regularly on this show, but let's uh, we can kick off the, the week, and I think you'll be hearing lots more talk about mental health issues uh, throughout the week from in different shows. Um, so we're going to start it tonight and it's a good, uh, a good opportunity because it is our therapist panel tonight. It's the night that I gather, uh, some colleagues, um, in, well, used to be in studio, but with us on the show, um, who can share their experiences, not just mine as a therapist, but theirs too. We all have different approaches, although we all get along real well. So I know we all work uh, well together and probably have very similar values and similar approaches. So uh, we've got with us Sandra Reese. She's a psychotherapist. She's the clinical director of the Montreal Center for Anxiety and Depression. We have uh, Stefan Bensusen, who is a health psychologist. He is the director of Psy Santé. So I have some text here. So I want to address before my own agenda, I'd rather uh, listen to what our listeners have to say and, uh, and share this. Um, I'm truly at the point, given everything that happened in the just last six months, protest after protest, people losing it, seems the lockdowns and confinement and so many other things, the cure is outweighing uh, the cause. Well, I think some people are, you know, it's like there's a secondary or parallel pandemic going on, you know, and it's a mental health crisis. 
is really what's happening. As this other crisis is happening, there's a parallel one that has developed and it has become a mental health crisis. So uh, it is something that has to be addressed and dealt with. I think uh, more and more the government is looking into this. I think uh, looking into creating like uh, funds, I guess, or, or some resources for people, they do have resources for um, for people for sure. Uh, and even if you just call the 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 uh, COVID line, they uh, they can connect you to. Uh, it says on the line, like if you if you need help, uh, support, or other kinds of help that's non medical, uh, there's a, a place for you also. Uh, as a single gay man in my fifties, I learned a long time ago to be independent, not to be worried about not having many friends. I now have a close knit set of people aged from 40 to 85, usually meeting every other weekend, not seeing them since Labor Day weekend is starting to take a toll on us all. We recently put forth our to-do list of what we will do when time comes, hopefully providing a boost of faith. One thing is for sure, our first moments will be celebrated with copious glasses of bubbly or rum and Coke. <laughs> mm. A lot of people are going to want to celebrate, I'm telling you right cheers now. Cheers to that. <laughs> yeah, cheers to that, exactly. Uh, as a single person, I haven't touched another human or animal for over a year now. Is it abnormal to not have a problem with this? I think I'm really getting used to it and don't think I could go back to pre-COVID behavior in many ways. That's that's interesting you bring that up. There are some people who are thriving in under these conditions, okay? Like now I know and I've worked with people who are for example, people who are on the spectrum or people who don't are more um, you know, maybe are, are introverted, are are more shy, are uh, mm -hmm. less social or who get anxious in those situations are loving this. It's like I can buy from a distance, I have an excuse not to go somewhere, I don't have to go anywhere. Uh, so all of that is, uh, <laughs> it's interesting how, how it's affecting people. It, it, it's, uh, so not everybody is suffering in, it from, from the deprivation, let's just say, but you know, everybody's different. Uh, here's another one that says, I have a generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, dysthymia, and mild BDP that manifests mostly as fear of abandonment and other anxieties and mood regulation problems. I am on the maximum dose of Effexor on Abilify for two months and take Ativan sometimes for when it gets too much with my anxiety. The problem is my anxiety is still so intense that I cannot function. I can't even make a pot of tea or do the dishes without struggling. When I take the Ativan, I am suddenly productive, able to clean and do activities I enjoy, but it doesn't last. The anxiety returns. Is there anything I can talk to my doctor about adding? I am already in therapy for two years and following CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy. The anxiety is ruining my life and I can't get my doctor to take me seriously. My therapist wrote my doctor a letter, but he said to keep continuing my treatment. But my anxiety is so bad, I can't function. He said, considering all the medications and treatments, there is nothing else they can do for me. Thank you for reading. That's pretty heavy. Uh, that's a, a difficult situation to be in. So I want to get you guys some of what would you do and what would you recommend for somebody uh, like this, Stefan? Well, first of all, you, you, you have a right to ask for a psychiatrist. 
and I would highly recommend this person get. When you have a multiple diagnosis like this person does, it's usually a good idea to get a psychiatrist involved. Um, Abilify is one drug that can increase anxiety in some people, and it's not necessarily the best medication for that individual. So if you're not getting the answers you need or the support you need from your physician, ask to get a referral to a psychiatrist who is a specialist in, in mental health conditions and with medication like that. Good plan. Sandra, what would you add to that? Uh, well, you know, it's funny. Um, my background is in cognitive behavioral therapy, but I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. And although cognitive behavioral therapy is the treatment of choice for anxiety, one of the areas that CBT sometimes misses is the role of emotions. And, um, you know, all the different medications we're talking about here, and especially Ativan, is muting the emotions. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering about whether in her or his work there's any discussion about what emotions are not uh, being felt and worked through because emotions that are repressed often turn into anxiety, particularly anger. So that's uh, something I'd be very curious about, and I think that needs to be added to the roster as some emotional work. Okay, so maybe uh, talking to the therapist about either doing more emotional work and not just the cognitive uh, behavioral stuff. So being able to go, yeah. I guess, to go digging a little bit. It's it's scary, but it is something that uh, I think Sandra's yeah. on the right track here. We have to remember that anxiety is your body trying to get your attention. So it is trying to tell you something. So sometimes it's about deciphering what the code is and what's the body trying to tell you. So it is an interesting adjunct to throw in there is what is the messaging here going on? And also, uh, this person talked about fear of abandonment, which means that tells me there's childhood trauma or some other trauma that also needs to be dealt with, which is related to the emotions, I think, that you're talking about, Sandra. So uh, doing some of that work as well is, uh, is good. Uh, A lot of talk about medication, this person writes, but it is my opinion that this is just a stopgap measure. The root of the problem is not addressed. As therapists, I would hope you could provide exercises and activities to help reduce tension. One thing is to reach out to people I wouldn't normally um, contact. So I think we may have a different idea of of the medication being a stopgap. I think if you know the physiology of what happens to the dopamine and serotonin physiologically, something is not working. Something something is not firing in the brain properly when we're talking about the severe kinds of, uh, of anxiety. So it's not just, oh, I'm just feeling a little bit nervous. That's normal. Um, so we have to be careful when we make statements like that because it makes people feel bad that they need the medication. For some people, when they are taking those medications, it is only then that they are able to work on the main issues that may have contributed to and made it worse for them. We also know there's a genetic basis for anxiety and depression. So there are other things we can't, it's, it's wrong to make that kind of judgment um, simply because somebody is taking medication. Coming up, more talk about uh, mental health issues. Got a question about Ativan and suicide. And we'll talk about stress and cortisol levels as well. Hopefully we'll have time for all of that. After- Passion with Dr. Lori Batito on CJAD 800. It is our therapist panel um, tonight on the program. So uh, we have uh, Stefan Ben Susan, 
who is with us as well, uh, and Sandra Reich. Uh, Stefan is a health psychologist. Stefan, mute out your Zoom so we don't get a, a thing. And uh, we have, uh, so Stefan's a health psychologist. Sandra is a psychotherapist and the clinical director of the Montreal Center for Anxiety and Depression. So we do have lots of, uh, <laughs> lots of text here. Uh, according to RCI Montreal, which I don't know what RCI Montreal is, do you, any of you know, has a four times increase in suicide in the last eight months. Unfortunately, the suicide rates, uh, not surprisingly, have increased because the rates of depression have increased and the lack of support. It's really tough and, and maybe tougher to get the support these days because we don't have the the physical contact with people. So it could be that people are having a harder time. Uh, This one person writes, I was given an Ativan after a serious situation. It helped. It really did. And I did not get addicted, but I do wish I could get it today. I still have anxiety. I get some other weird anxiety drug I did not like. So for some people, Ativan works as a, when you're, when you're feeling particularly anxious, you can take as needed kind of, right? Uh, And it immediately reduces um, like the whole system just kind of just brings everything kind of uh, down. So, uh, and then person right- Because that event is is highly addictive. So we have to make sure that we don't take it for too long. And if it's more of a chronic issue, uh, antidepressant medication works just as well and are better and, and more stable. Yeah. So sometimes I think uh, for a lot of people they who are already on anti-anxiety medications, when they see a spike or they have a particularly difficult day uh, or a particularly difficult time or to help them sleep, they may take a couple of times a week or what have you an Ativan, as long as they know that it's something that they they use, like it's that emergency in your, yeah, it's that emergency in your pocket kind of thing, right? It's like, okay, I've got it there just in case. Uh, so I want to talk about, with you guys about this study because I thought it was really interesting, especially I used to fan as a, as a health psychologist. So um, a new study shows that a partner's experience of stress affects the other partner's um, body. So this is by uh, Dr. Uh, Rosie Shrout at the Ohio State University. Uh, they explored whether one's experiences of stress, as well as their partner's perceptions of stress, both affected an individual's cortisol levels. Cortisol levels are the stress um, hormones that are Hormone. released. They also tested whether these links between stress and cortisol were exacerbated by using more negative behaviors during a disagreement, such as contempt, devaluing a partner, criticism, eye rolling, and a hostile tone of voice. The study's findings suggest that individuals whose partners were more stressed had cortisol levels that were less likely to decline across the day, and participants with less stressed partners had healthier cortisol patterns with steep uh, steeper declines between morning and night. And there was a trend for a partner's stress levels to be associated with one's own levels of cortisol following a conflict um, discussion. So for couples who demonstrated more negative and fewer positive behaviors during arguments, individuals with more stressed partners had higher levels of um, of cortisol. So how you respond <laughs> affects the other person's physiology 
as well. So, and we've talked about this before, um, Sandra, right? With that anxiety is, anxiety is contagious. It's like once you let it out onto somebody else, now they've absorbed it. Uh, So you might feel better, but they don't, the other person doesn't now. So maybe we could talk about that, the contagion a little bit and how it actually impacts us. Who wants to go? Sandra, you go. Well, I mean, I think you just brought up, uh, you know, anxiety is highly contagious. And I think that, you know, when even it goes further than anxiety, I mean, there's mirror neurons in our eyes. We look at each other. We literally pick up emotions from each other. um, And certainly stress is one that can go like a hot potato back and forth. So we are definitely going to be affected by the people around us. And that's why it becomes very relevant is that there's a lot of research that shows the strongest emotion in the household runs the household. So that means if someone's very depressed or someone's very anxious and they say, well, no, 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 my kids are not being affected by that. We, I hide it from them. Forget it. Um, <laughs> not the true. The whole household is being impacted by that. So it really means, and I think during this pandemic, it really becomes relevant. And we really have to be doing our work and taking responsibility. It is a time taking the time to exercise, get outside. I know you do that all the time, Dr. Lurie. Uh, oh, yeah. Sometimes we even meet and do it. Um, <laughs> you know, eat properly. Uh, you know, have structure, you know, do those things, you know, your time about going into your studio and I do my copies with my husband, Stefan, I'm sure you have rituals of your own too. These are so important because, especially because of the contagion effect, it's not only about every member of your household. Right. And I think uh, an interesting um, article last week, I talked about this, that there's an outside force of all and it's making us all stressed. Okay. So I I really, I don't know too many people who are not feeling it. And I think we need to be compassionate with each other and give each other a pass. In other words, yes, you might be irritable. Yes, you might be snappy more than usual. Uh, Let's blame it on that outside thing that is affecting us all and not so much our partners, you know, let, let's just go here with each other, knowing that we are all stretched, you know, we're all, we're all stressed out. And uh, so sometimes, you know, we, we might take it out a little bit. Doesn't, it's not an excuse to be abusive, by the way, that's not what I'm saying, but at the very least, like, let's give each other a little bit of a pass that yes, we might be particularly uh, stressed out. Uh, Stefan, you want to add some stuff to that? Yeah, let's not forget that we're living with each other, you know, our loved ones all day long, all every single day. We don't see anybody else sometimes. So intimacy breeds contempt, right? And we're used to going out and seeing lots of other people and distracting ourselves with work and stuff. And sometimes we don't get that luxury anymore. So people working from home, uh, there's a greater likelihood of conflict because you see that person as much as you love them, you also hate them at times, right? <laughs> so at some point, that person will get on your nerves. So absolutely, I agree with, with everything that you guys are saying, but let's make sure that we, we have time for ourselves, whether it's going for a walk or listening to a podcast or a show or doing something that nourishes our, our soul, our spirit. Um, I say the most important thing right now to do, that's why I tell my clients, is, is to find something that you can do that's creative, whether so, it's uh, yes. sculpting or painting or painting by numbers or <laughs> anything <laughs> or that you're creating. Puzzles, anything, exactly. Yeah, the crea- your creativity is a really, it's a depression uh, fighter. So we need to kind of get creative in some capacity, whether it's personal or social media or whatever that turns you on. But find something that you can Mm -hmm. do that you either haven't done before, that's something you'd like to learn, 
or something they like to create. But the creativity piece is you doing something. You're taking a risk. You're, you're trying to change something in your life. And that can spark the dopamine and the, and the serotonin to go up, which will actually be a great mood uplifter. So, yeah, yeah. we talked a lot about medicine today, medication, but let's not forget Natural that exercise highs, yeah. and... Yeah, and, and, and those creativity boosters will actually increase those, those, those brain chemicals in a natural way. I can tell you that if it wasn't for my, uh, cre- the, my creative side and, and having the space and the time to do that, and I, I don't know if I would be able to work the, the hours that I do doing the work that I do. Yeah. Uh, this, is my, this is my self-care, but, uh, I, and it's fun to create and then gift people with things. I, like, I, you know, it's just stuff I'm yeah, of course, I have no more room to put all this stuff because nobody's coming over so I can give them a gift of my art. But what the, I well, guess I'll I'll just have it all, you know, put away uh, for some point. I, I don't know if, um, Stefan, there's a question here and maybe, you know, uh, could propofol be used to treat anxiety? I was given it before minor surgery and I liked the feeling of being on it, had zero anxiety about the procedure and felt so relaxed. Could it be prescribed? Isn't that like given just pre-surgery to call, like, that's not really an, uh, a daily drug that you take as far I as think I it's know. More pro- I think it's more propanol, which is more of a more beta propanol. blocker used for the heart. Um, we okay. give it to heart patients, but not so much for anybody else, but it does have a calming effect apparently on the on the mind and on the and on the heart and on the body itself. But that's it's not a, a common medication, but obviously it should be checked out with her doctor. Yeah, I mean, I, look, we are not none of us are medical doctors here. So as much as we know uh, the the major classes of drugs to treat anxiety and depression, we don't. You know, we don't know all the other stuff that could be used, sometimes off-label or, or I don't know. So you'll have to check with your doctor if that's something that uh, that can be used. And lastly, a person says, I called a friend today because I knew that he needed to take a bunch of, of his stress out. So I sat and listened to him over the phone, and I hope he feels better. I'm sure. I'm sure that it helps. Uh, I was giving something started with a C for anxiety, probably Celexa. I hated it. I quit when I wasn't supposed to, and I'll never take it again. So again, you know, uh, medications, it's not one size fits all. If your anxiety is interfering with your life and you're having a hard time, uh, you have to speak with your doctor to be able to figure out what meds work best for you. I think that's, uh, that's the bottom line. So when there's other options too, maybe that you could explore, but talk to a therapist about it. And speaking of which, uh, Sandra Reich, uh, although you may not have much space these days, uh, how can people find you? Sure. They can call the clinic 514-777-4530 or through the website helpforanxietydepression.com. And Stefan, for you? They can call the office at 514-542-6888 or at fitusante.com. Right. Uh, And just so most of you know, most therapists are doing uh, sessions through uh, Zoom, uh, although some are doing in person. We are essential services, so we are allowed to. It doesn't mean we're all comfortable to. I'm not. Sandra's not. Stefan, I think you do a bit of work in the office. Yeah. Yeah. So, and a lot of therapists are doing mixed practices um, right now. So, that's something you can always ask when you're looking for a a therapist. Thank you so much for spending your time uh, with us. Thanks to our technical producer, Dave Syme. If you want to reach me, you can. 
contact me through my website at drlaurie.com, D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E.com. Coming up next year on CJD, we bring you the CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening. Stay safe and remember to live your life with passion.